Amen. You may take your seats. On this Sunday morning, it's hard to follow all that's come before. The preacher seems superfluous. He is, but the preached word is not. If you would please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 31. As you're turning there, I want you to think about something we've already seen this morning, and that is a comparison and a contrast between the Pharisee and, as the King James used to put it, the publican, right? The Pharisee and the publican, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Compare and contrast. I used to groan when a teacher would give an assignment. Now, compare and contrast this person with this person, or this event uh, and that event. And do so in a short essay of some 1,000 or 2,000 words. Is it perverse for uh, an adult Lee to like to do that and be on the other side of that equation and say to my students, compare and contrast Thomas Hobbes and Machiavelli and their views of human nature. I heard a groan. <laughs> it is perverse. I'll let you decide and judge accordingly. It's a human thing to do, isn't it? To compare and contrast. Not just teachers, not just students, everybody. Whether it's playing fantasy football on one player versus another player, which one do you want to draft? Or it's like some of us last night, comparing and contrasting the new Kanye with the old. Or maybe it's looking into the mirror and contrasting what you see with your teenage picture or your picture from the 20s, your 20s. Or maybe you're standing in front of the mirror and you're contrasting yourself with a real person, whether real or airbrushed, and it haunts you. Maybe it's comparing and contrasting yourself with a coworker, the coworker that always seems to get ahead while you're stuck in neutral. Comparing and contrasting is a human thing we do. It's an ancient thing. It goes back to Jesus, comparing and contrasting a tax collector and Pharisee. It goes back even deeper, doesn't it? Even longer ago. All the way back, I guess we could say, to Cain and Abel. Cain versus Abel. And as we have seen what's been happening in this last portion of the book of Samuel, or at least the first half of Samuel, we have been seeing this very thing, comparing and contrasting. The author continues to compare and contrast David... And Saul. Ever since the introduction of the character David, comparing, contrasting, comparing, contrasting, in page turner fashion, right? I mean, he, he's got two storylines. One storyline's about David, and you're going along and it's getting excited, and then he stops and he goes to Saul. And he, and he goes uh, through Saul's storyline to, to a certain point, and then he what? Stops and he goes back to David and he keeps us going. And last time we were with David, the storyline of David, we were in the, the, what seemed to be tragedy that turns into comedy with what, what started out bad, distressful, pain, agony, and ends up in blessing and in victory. We, we were last week in Ziklag, and then David's inquiring of the Lord. He wanted to hear the word of the Lord, and the Lord gave him his word. And he not only gave him his word, he gave him victory. Gave him victory over the Amalekites. 
And that's where we were, but the, the, the Saul pot, plot line was, was paused. Saul and the Israelites are, are at war, but we're, we're not told about what's going on, but they're at war when, when David's defeating the Amalekites. And now we come to chapter 31. And the pause button is released. And we see that the war has been going on. We're just kind of thrown into the action. Give your attention to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell, fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Get the picture. War. People falling left and right. Dead bodies on the mountain. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Amalekashua, the sons of Saul. And the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through, and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all of his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. And the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And so they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Saul. Today's story isn't comedic. Today's story isn't heroic. Today's story is tragic. For the unrepentant, whether Saul or the unrepentant today, upon their death, life ends tragically and flows into an eternity of being cast out from the marriage supper of the Lamb. Into the outer darkness, as Jesus said, where there is weeping and where there is gnashing of teeth. For the unrepentant that remains unrepentant to the point of death, there is but weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
the comparison and the contrasting story has been one of comedy versus tragedy. And here we finally read the tragic end of this man Saul. We've been seeing it coming, right? This is no surprise. Maybe if we're honest with ourselves, we're even saying, I'm glad it's over. I'm glad to be done with this man called Saul. He's so awful. Notice, too, we're coming to the end of his life in fulfillment of the very Word of God. 1 Samuel 15, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. 1 Samuel 28, the passage that Nathan preached from recently. From from the dead Samuel comes these words. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you didn't obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. That is, you'll be dead. And the Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. For you did not do what I told you to do against Amalek. Who is David and his men? Who have they just defeated? The Amalekites. Compare, contrast. Now Saul, in fulfillment of the word of God, Saul would fall. He would fall as the word of the Lord that he had rejected as the word of judgment fell upon him. Saul, the unrepentant. Saul, the proud and superstitious. Saul, without the word of the Lord. Saul, the one who didn't follow the word of the Lord. Saul, the one who was all about his own kingdom. Saul, the one who wouldn't turn over the kingdom to David when it's announced it belongs to David. Clung to it. Saul, with his one medium, tucked away in case he needed to use that medium. Saul, as Nathan showed us a few weeks ago, the apostate. Saul, the unrepentant. Now, some of you who have been following the story so far, this uh, compare and contrast story between Saul and David, maybe, maybe you're asking yourself, well, well Pastor Lee, I know Saul was bad, but David wasn't an innocent man himself, was he? And and those of you who've read ahead and you know a little bit more of David's story, you say, and David would go on and do what? Commit horrendous sins. Why is it that Saul is a tragic story? And David is this beautifully comedic story. On a divine level, God's sovereign choice. On a very human level, 
in a word, repentance. Or in the case of Saul, the lack of repentance. The lack, the absence. Remorse? Yeah, maybe for a short-lived time or two. But repentance? None. Go back to chapter 13. When confronted by Samuel for his sin of not waiting upon the word of the Lord, instead trusting in his own actions, even when those actions were relatively, what we might say, were good, arrogantly relying upon them, impatiently relying upon them. When Samuel came and brought word of conviction, does Saul repent? No. He defends his impatient self-trust. In chapter 15, when confronted with his sin of not obeying the word of God about the Amalekites, he first lies. Then he blame shifts. Then he acts like he's confessing. But as we read further, really he just doesn't want to be dishonored before his guys. Repentance? No. No turning back. No turning back back. And when given an opportunity to abdicate the throne, no. And instead of abdicating his throne to David, he tracks him down again and again and again. Repentance does not go with Saul. And then there was the slaughter of the priests of the Lord. Repentance does not go with Saul. Saul is the unrepentant one. And then finally, that final act of vile apostasy of chapter 28. Saul, the unrepentant. Notice the effects. Notice the effects of Saul's refusal to repent time and time again. Just the the, the, the results here, the effects here in chapter 31. Beloved Jonathan dies. Beloved Jonathan dies. Sin splatters. And secondly, reproach is brought upon the name of the Lord. Reproach and shame is brought upon the name of Yahweh before these pagans. Verses 8 through 10, the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the gospel to the house of their idols and to the people. Make no mistake, in this act... The Philistines believed that their gods had defeated Yahweh. Just like when they brought in the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of Dagon. Saul, the unrepentant. This is the fruit of failing to repent of sins. Our sins affect others. Not only ourselves, affect others. Our sins bring shame upon the name of the one whose name we bear. Saul the unrepentant. But David, 
He was a sinner too, right? Yes. His sins affected other people, right? Yes. His sins brought reproach upon the name of his God, right? Yes. Yes, but by God's grace, David was what? A man of humble repentance. There's an incredibly helpful verse from the pen of at least Paul's secretary, of the Apostle Paul, written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when he was writing to the Corinthian church. He was writing to the Corinthian church and he's talking about Moses and the Israelites, and the Israelites is murmuring and, and, and wandering in the wilderness. And Paul says, now these things took place as examples for us. That we may not desire evil as they did. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. If we take that principle of Paul about Old Testament stories and apply that principle to the story of the life and death of Saul. Then Saul's story is a tragic story that serves as a cautionary tale to all of us who find ourselves in covenant with God. Do you bear the mark of the covenant? Have you been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Are you a part of the covenant community? If you are, pay attention. Take heed. Saul was a circumcised man. He was a member of the covenant community. And yet, what does he do? I'll tell you what he didn't do. He didn't repent. This is a cautionary tale. Yeah, we're not like Saul, are we? Oh, yes, we are. Saul was prideful. You ever battled pride? Saul was superstitious. We can be that too, can't we? Not just baseball players. Not just Saul. Every single one of us sitting here. He was pig-headed. Let me just tell you, Sheldon's can be pig-headed. Lee can be very pig-headed. Saul was outwardly religious, was he not? Did his time. Did the religious rites. Saul talked about wanting a word from God when all he really wanted was for the Lord to tell him what he wanted to hear. Sound familiar? Saul was all about his kingdom. Any of you about the kingdom of me? The kingdom of you? We talk about the kingdom of the Lord, but we don't mind being the center of that kingdom, do we? Saul looks a whole lot like Lee. Lee looks a whole lot like Saul. 
compare, contrast. I'd rather look like David. How about you? David, sinner though he was, yet would do what? By God's grace, confess and repent. Go to Psalm 32. Go to Psalm 51. You'll get the heartbeat of this fallen sinner saved by grace. And if David's not a good enough example, use the tax collector that Jesus has told us about this morning. But there's something deeper going on here. To, to, to use Lewis's language, there's a deeper magic at work. Why does the story end the way the story ends? Yes, we should be comparing and contrasting Saul and David and asking ourselves, which are we more like? It's legitimate. Let's do it. But there's more. The contrasts and the comparisons are continuing. Think with me. Saul does not want to be humiliated on the battlefield. He doesn't want to be toyed with. He doesn't want to be abused. And therefore he does what? Takes his life. The eternal Son of God for unfathomable reasons to Lee, determined to step down out of glory, take on human flesh, and be willing to be humiliated to the point of death on the cross for all the sins of all those who would place their faith and trust in Him. The cross, that great battlefield, far greater than Mount Gilboa. The cross where, in that greatest of all ironies, when Jesus looked completely defeated by sin, by Satan, by all forces of evil, is actually doing what? Crushing the head of Satan. So don't look to Saul. Now, look to Jesus. The comparison and contrast continue on further step. Saul had begun his reign in the power of the Spirit as the Savior of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead. He had saved them by the power of the Spirit when he was doing very good and very valiantly. He had saved them from a ruthless, arrogant pagan by the name of Nahash the Ammonite. That's how his story begins. Savior of the people of Jabesh Gilead. How does his story end? It ends with the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead in a valiantly and a very risky move pay the debt of their gratitude. And they deliver the corpse of Saul from the humiliation that he was trying to avoid. If they could do that for a savior, a deliverer like Saul, how much more so would Joseph of Arimathea and the women who went to the tomb early in the morning 
how much more so would they honor? Would they pay a debt of gratitude for someone that they loved? And yes, no doubt they're confused. Why is he dead? Why did he die? Why is he in the tomb? But we want to pay our respects and we want to honor him. Let's take him down from the cross. Let's bury him and let's anoint his body as a means of gratitude. How much more so do they bring honor to their true and glorious Savior? But the comparisons and contrasts don't stop with them. If those who have been no doubt confused and heartbroken thinking that Jesus would remain dead could honor Him, how much more so should we who know Him not to be dead but to be very much alive in our lives? How do you honor Him this day? You've honored Him by your presence here. I pray that you've honored Him not only with your physical presence, but the presence of your heart. You honor Him by looking to Him. You honor Him by acknowledging you do not belong to yourself. You belong, body and soul, to the Lord Jesus Christ in life and in death. You honor Him by saying, I trust in Christ. Jesus Christ, by Your Spirit, spare me from the sin of unrepentance. Let's pray. Lead us to the rock that is higher than us. Spirit, by your leading, open up our hearts and our eyes to behold Jesus, for mercy flows through him alone.